Welcome to the Josh Bolton Show, where we dive into interesting and inspiring conversations. And now, your host, Josh Bolton. Thank you. Um, so I'm just curious. So how long, you said you've been doing your agency like 10 years, right? Uh, eight and a half years formally incorporated as Thoughtlight LLC. We started out in 2014. Okay. Um, before that, I was in-house for a little while. But um, prior to that, I was freelance and uh, did some did a lot of consulting work. So all told, in my current incarnation, it's been since 2014. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. It's been a so, blessing, too. I bet. The opportunities and the clients you get to work with, it must be fun. It absolutely is. We've been blessed to work with everybody from, you know, major consulting firms and Fortune 500 companies all the way to individual authors in the local area doing great work. It's been, I mean, so far, it's been an amazing ride. That's awesome. So I'm just curious on a side note, um, how would it... Because depending on the author, they don't make enough. How do you work out the pricing with them? Or is so, it like per customer the kind of thing? Um, well, you know, I have a standard publishing contract. I um I basically I work with two different publishers, and you're right, author royalties are a fraction of what you actually pay for a book when people go the traditional publishing route. And I mm-hmm. I thought it would be a good idea to go the traditional publishing route um, just for my first couple of books versus self-publishing. And you're right. I don't have any control, by the way, either of the price and royalties. You can certainly negotiate, but they are everyone, you know, everyone knows it's a fraction of the the cover price of the book. And um, I, I got one, I got one book review on Amazon. By the way, the book has like a 4.7 rating on Amazon. But one person said, I'm taking this down one star to four stars because the book's too expensive. And I felt like saying, I have no control over that. Um, It is available at a discount. And I can actually share that discount with with listeners so that I, I can do something about giving a coupon to your listeners. That's awesome. I was going to say, as I've been looking up, I'm like, I need to get to that book. I've just been so busy. I'm like, hopefully there's an audio version. I can just listen there. You know, there isn't, but I'm going to talk to my publisher about, I will, I will read this book and it'll be, because I'm a big audiobook believer too. Like I literally, right? almost all the reading I do is audio. Same. Unless it's like something very technical, like math, that you really should see it. I don't read like paper books anymore. I don't. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I'm a huge fan of paper books and I'm thrilled that paper books are not, not gone. Um, one of the schools I teach at Brandeis university has this wonderful, um, library and I walked past it yesterday and we were doing a campus coat drive and I, I donated two coats to the community and I walked past the library and they had that, library smell. And I was like, ah, that is a great smell. But at the same time, I got my Kindle here. In fact, I literally have two. And 90% of my library is here now. But I have these here for sure. And I actually do enjoy reading paper books, but it's just, it's just more efficient, right? Yeah. It's more efficient. Cause like for me, I can be working. I'll just pop in one headphone and I can be driving for an hour blast through like two or three chapters kind of thing. 
Yeah. If it was normal reading, I'd be like, uh, shit, there's a car kind of thing. Exactly. So. Exactly. And you get it done on the train and, and yeah, no, I think, uh, I, I think that, you know, ebooks are the way to go and the kindle version of my book is also available at a discount plus it's cheaper anyway so you it's a win-win right that's awesome so what are the the, the books so i can look them up and um, I'll, I'll add it to my wish list to like okay it, audible when does this come out kind of thing oh so um yeah i'm gonna actually ask about um doing an audible book but the book currently is available just in print and uh kindle version the the second book that's out right now it's called marketing metrics um it is from kogan page the full title it's it's an earful marketing metrics leverage analytics and data to optimize marketing strategies and that's truly what it's all about okay. and um the first book is with flat world and it's a textbook that will teach you everything on just like the basic level, presuming no prior knowledge about marketing analytics, which is a little bit different um, from marketing metrics. It's more on the data and how do you do the data? And that's marketing analytics, a comprehensive guide from flat world also available on Amazon. Okay. Honestly, definitely after this chat, I'm going to go pick one up because it's like, big one everyone's been yelling at me about is like, oh, you need to get into marketing, do this, this, and this. And I'm like, that's great. But how am I supposed to interpret this to this? Like, I, I get it. Like you get so many impressions to move so many click through to so many purchases, but there's other moving parts that can be like, even though it's not good because this is high, you're doing fine kind of thing. Or am I, did I interpret it all that wrong? You did not. Was it your face was like, what the hell is he talking about? No, no. So I'm tr I was trying to formulate a response that would apply in as many situations as possible. So let me let me take it back a, a left a, a, a step. Um, there's no one metric that tells everybody everything. But depending on your industry, depending on your goals, depending on you go to market strategy, there's a bunch of metrics that do tell you an enormous amount. I would say if there's such a thing as a universal metric, it's going to be your uh, your advertising ROI, your return on ad spend, and your marketing okay. ROI. So for every dollar or pound or euro or whatever your currency is, for every everything I invest in marketing, how much of that comes back in profit? Now, in my books, I talk about revenue. And the reason I focus on revenue versus profit is that I also want this to be useful to the agency world. And mm -hmm. when you work in an agency, you often don't have the insight into the profits that your clients are generating. You can only look at the revenue by looking at the list price, for instance, of the, what they're selling, et cetera, et cetera. So I use revenue. A lot of marketers rely on revenue. It's ideal, of course, if you look at profit. And I talk about that in my book about how that's where you want to get to. But frankly, even if you're just looking at dollar for dollar, how much am I investing in my marketing? And of that, how much is coming back in what people are spending? It's a good sign that marketing is helping you get to the right customers. So if there is a universal metric that says you're doing great, it's going to be that. Um, okay. Okay. There's, there's other metrics and they really depend on, you know, are you an e-commerce business? Are you you a B2B brand? Are you um, 
a B2B brand that has a long sales cycle, a short sales cycle? Are you brick and mortar primarily? So lots of nuances come in after that. But that that ROI, that's that universal golden metric you got to be tracking. Cool. So I would say you you mentioned in your pitch and the the listing, you had like eight metrics that you, you work with and teach people about? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And I would say that those are the ones that I recommend that everybody focus on as much as possible. So um, I talk in my book about the core four, which is the four major types of metrics. But um, going beyond the types of metrics, there's also the specific data you want to look at. Um, and, And here's how I how I envision them. Number one, again, we just talked about it. You want to look at your return on ad spend or you want to look at your marketing ROI more broadly. You know, if you're looking at that, you are golden. So look at both of those metrics if you can. Then you want to take a look at your customer analytics. And that's it's absolutely critical. And that can be everything from what, what gets your customers excited. In other words, what are they clicking on on your website? Is it, let's say, I'll give you an example, and I'm, I'm big on I'm big on having props on my desk. So let's say you're awesome. a, a lip balm, lip balm company, like right? you make chapstick. Okay. And it's organic and it's hypoallergenic and I don't know, gluten free. I, okay. I don't, you know, just making all the buzzwords, we'll just throw them in. All the buzzwords, right? And let's say you have blog posts on your website, some of which talk about, oh, how to make your personal shopping more sustainable, how to have a lower carbon footprint. You also have blog posts on how to manage having, I don't know, gluten allergy and, uh, you know, which is a very serious thing for people who have it. And then you've got other things talking about just you know how good this stuff is like how high quality the formulation um, keeps you from you know freezing when you're out skiing or something like that and you're going to want to look at the metrics on well what are people clicking on because let's say I've got 50 blog posts out there a third of them are on our sustainability a third of them are on our quality of our product and a third of them are on how it's hypoallergenic so it's even and you're equally promoting all of them then you can look though are people equally reading them because let's say everyone is really more focused on reading about your product quality. You don't get a lot of traction on the stuff that's about it being hypoallergenic. Maybe then that part of your value proposition is not as exciting to customers. And maybe the thing that's sort of in the middle there is the fact that it's sustainable. That's incredibly valuable information that you can gather just from your web analytics and only from one small part of your web analytics, which is the analytics around what people are reading on your blog. Like that's enough to start to give you an indicator of what your customer's interests are. Doesn't mean it's definitive, right? I mean, it you know, you're going to have to do more analysis, more research, but it's pointing you in one direction. So number two, after you're looking at your ROI is look at your customer analytics broadly, but specifically look at your top content on your website. Top content, okay. 
Top content is really critical. And by the way, I'm, I'll pull together a, a cheat sheet on all of this as well. So you've got. Okay, okay I'm listening here, writing everything down. I'm like, I better say okay. this. Feel free to do that, but I will also pull together a cheat sheet for all of your um, all of your readers. So I will be sure to put it in the description for everyone. Perfect. Absolutely. Um, next up, what you want to look at is who are your top segments? Who are the customers who? are the ones who are the most loyal, who okay. are going to spend the most money with you or who are the highest growth. It doesn't have to be all three. What matters to you? If you're at a place where you're not really looking to grow exponentially, let's say you're a mature company, it might be loyalty or it might be spend. If on the other hand, you're a new brand, you might be wanting people to be the ones who have the highest growth potential. So look at your top segments. Also make sure that top segments is defined for your organization. All right, what do we want our, what do we want our customers to, to look like? What customer segments do we want to reach? So that's number three. Um, number four is your traffic sources. So where are we getting traffic from? Because first metric, return on ad spend, that's looking at where are we investing that we then end up getting customers from. But you could be getting customers from places you're not even investing. Maybe there's an influence out, influencer out there talking up your organization. Or maybe you're doing really well in organic search uh, without even realizing it. It was through this that, for instance, for one of our clients, Analytical Answers out in Uber, Massachusetts, which is a scientific lab, we discovered literally the coolest things. It didn't end up having any real impact on their lead generation because they were B2B business, but it was a really cool sign that our content strategy was giving them buzz. They're, a, they're an analytical lab, which means they use very high-powered scientific instruments to analyze materials um, for a variety of industries from pharmaceutical to defense tech. And we decided to do a Just for Fun series around the holidays where we had them use these super high-powered, state-of-the-art microscopes to look at sugar, salt, and flour under microscopes and then explain how different types of sugar, salt, and flour impact your baking. We just That's did it cool. for a lark. It was so much fun. Uh, we had a wonderful, an intern wrote the blog post who was studying chemistry at BU, and this got picked up by BuzzFeed. Oh, that's huge, if that's the case. It was immense. And suddenly we're getting all of this traffic. Of course, it was non-converting traffic because almost nobody was baking chocolate chip cookies. But they're like, oh, my God, if I put a certain flour in, it could be this. I don't want that. Exactly. Exactly. So it, we all got a kick out of it. Um, and we would never have known that if we hadn't been looking at our tra top traffic sources. Now, had we been with a B2C brand, we would have been all over it for, you know, pitching BuzzFeed with more and more stuff. It was certainly a big win. And so that's the sort of thing you want to measure is what are your top traffic sources? Because then you can leverage them for understanding um, where you could potentially be getting even more traffic or generating even better buzz. So that's four. Um, okay. Five, and again, I'm really trying to focus on like, what are the things you can get started with right now? Right. You want to look at response rates across different sectors. And those are actually going to be my next three, um, my next three metrics. So okay. 
your marketing automation email uh, open rate and response rate. How are people responding? And by the way, if you're not doing marketing automation, it's going to be your email open and click through rate. Um, okay. Thank you so much for that clarification. Yes, absolutely. So in some email platforms call it the open rate, which is the proportion of people who opened an email who then clicked on it. You also want to look at the open rate because that's going to tell you, is my message interesting to my existing loyal customers? And if so, which of my messages, like let's say you send out one email that's a BOGO, buy one, get one free, and it gets like a tepid response, but then you send out something that has a free recipe or some uh, let's say you're a sporting goods store, some exercise tips, and that gets an outstanding response. Then you know what your existing loyal customers care about and what they want from you. So that's really, really important. Look at the patterns, look at what gets the best response from your existing audience. And that if you have marketing automation is going to be in your marketing automation data in email, it's going to be your um, open rate and your either click rate or click to open rate, depending on how your platform finds it. Um, Response rate is equally important elsewhere, but I think people mismeasure it. So on social media, people look at likes, um, but likes are cheap, right? I want to say that's, I could literally pay a guy in Thailand 10 bucks and I could get like a hundred thousand likes. Kind of thing. You know, you could literally like, you can have people just randomly like things. So instead you're looking at real sentiment. What are you, what are the comments like? Um, mm. What's the comment sentiment? How many shares, how much engagement does a social media post get? So that's an, another really, really important metric, social media engagement rate, really. because that tells you, again, that your message is resonating. Now, it's resonating on a much lower level than an email click or even an email open. It requires much less commitment to the brand. It doesn't necessarily signal intent to buy. Right. Which is why you want to look at the next metric, and that is your click-through rate. Now, click-through rate applies everywhere, and that's simply the percentage of people who see something who then click on it. Um, and you can easily get that from most of your reporting platforms. But the click-through rate tells you how many people who saw this message actually um decided to take action. And I think a lot of times people misunderstand this. I would report on click-through rate even 10 years ago. We had CEOs saying things like, well, clicks don't turn me on. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But um, so they yeah. tend to think that there's going to be an immediate conversion, a lot of people. And that's not what it's about. You want to capture those micro conversions. You want to, you want to give people something that, gets them to commit to the brand in some small way, like so I'm going to sign up for the email or I'm going to follow them on social media. And so that's the next metric you want to look at. Obviously you're tracking your conversion rate, but if you just look at that, especially if you're in a long sales cycle business, you're going to lose 90% of your customers to your competition because you're expecting them to come in the door, even when they're in like the, the first day of a nine month sales cycle and be waving you a check. And that's not how it goes. So if you ignore those little early signals, like somebody clicked on your website, that's a sign of interest. So you want to have a mechanism for micro conversions, whether it's an email 
whether it's a social media sign up, it might even simply be a return visit. I wouldn't go so far as to call that a micro conversion, but you certainly need to be doing retargeting ads and measuring whether you're getting return visits, especially if you're B2B and in a long sales cycle. So I would say micro conversion rate is much more valuable unless you are selling like a cheap commodity item that people just buy right off the bat. You need to be looking at your micro conversion rate because otherwise you're really not getting the full story. And then finally, there is that metric that I just referred to um, where you need to look at your return visit. You want to figure out how can I seed those return visits with, let's say, retargeting ads. Even if you are not feeding those return visits, that's my bonus one. So ROAS, return on ad spend or ROI, your top content, your top segments, your traffic sources, your marketing automation or email click rate and click to open rate, social media engagement, your click through rate and your micro conversion rate are the top eight. And then I would say, if you want to look at a bonus ninth metric, that's going to be your percentage of returning visitors, because that's a sign that people are seriously considering doing business with you and a sign that you are reaching the right audience. Now is not the time to rest on your laurels. Now is the time to rope them back in and get them to engage with your brand. Yeah, that's really good. I really like how you presented that because I've had other people try to pitch this to me, but they don't hit all the angles like you just did. Thank you. you. I think that's so important. You want to hit all the angles because, again, there's no magic metric. You want to look at all of your metrics together because what does... Let's say you have a high click, click rate or click to open rate on your email. Great. But if that... If you're not reaching the right segments, if, if it's a segment you're not terribly interested in because they're un, they're um, unprofitable, that's doing all the clicking, then you might be losing money. You can't be like, oh, yay, we have this great click rate if it's people buying stuff that's your lowest margin product. And so that's just one example. We're looking at two metrics instead of one metric changes the whole picture. On the other hand, you could be sending out an email that's got a mediocre click rate, but the clicks are all coming from your most profitable segment, in which case you need to look at improving that versus looking at the email with like this wonderful click rate, but it's not it's genuinely not getting you anywhere because you're not making any money off of those transactions. So again, you've got to look at all of your marketing holistically. You cannot rely on a single metric. ROI is, you know, an important metric, but most of the time I, you're not going to know that for a while, especially in B2B. You need to look at intermittent metrics, not not intermittent, uh, intermediary metrics to know whether you're on the right track. You can't just sit around and say, okay, well, I won't know my ROI for two years because that's how long it takes, you know, for the sales cycle to complete itself. And then we know how profitable a customer is because if you're dealing with like the, the higher end of B2B, that is often the case. You, you don't, you don't have two years to sit around waiting to see if this was a profitable campaign. So you want to look at all of those other metrics to see, is it trending in the right direction? Are we making good progress? Is it looking like it's going to deliver high ROI 
And that's, um, that's the way you win. That's so interesting. Yeah. Especially with B2B, you could spend tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in ads and promos and all that, but they may be like, yeah, but we like so-and-so sales guy better. We're going to go with them. And you're like, I, okay. But you didn't know it until like the two years in. Exactly. Exactly. You've got to be purposeful and thoughtful about it in a much more organized way by looking at a wide range of metrics, not just one or two. So for the traffic source back to, because you were mentioning um, influencers, is that a big one you're seeing, especially if you're your customers? like higher going to like Influencify or whatever, TikTokers, that kind of thing? It depends. Um, a lot of times what we'll do is influencer outreach that's a little more organic. But Influencify okay. can be really valuable. Any of these influencer platforms can be excellent. I would say, especially if you're on TikTok, you you really have to work with creators versus just relying only on your brand presence or on advertising. I mean, you've got things like Spark ads that genuinely are um, both influencer marketing and advertising. I had the the privilege of having Susan Winograd from Search Engine Journal guest lecture my class earlier this week, and she talked about for TikTok, for instance, the extreme importance of doing Spark ads. And Spark ads are like a hybrid, obviously, between um, influencer marketing and advertising. And just so you know, um, for folks who are listening, I'm, I'm sure you know, Josh, it's about um, paying to promote content by a creator, not by your brand that happens to mention your brand. So that is, is I think, where the trust factor is now with consumers. You really want to do it in a way that's respectful, respectful of people's time, respectful of individual creators' um, motives and the type of work they do. Don't have people do stuff that's not authentic to who they are. They probably won't agree to it anyway. But nothing's worse than cringy um, influencer marketing. But when you do it the right way, it's fantastic. Oh yeah. And then you're whoever they're following is there's a diehard, like anywhere from 10 to 20%. They're going to just go over and be like, all right, with you, we're with you because of him kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's so important. So important. It really is. Yeah. And especially with TikTok, it's funny. Uh, I moved it. There's a little gray pouch right here mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a gimbal and I was watching TikTok and this lady with Parkinson's. So her hands like shaking like this. But she had the gimbal and the camera didn't move at all. And I'm like, I, I said in the comments, I hate to be that guy. My hands are kind of shaky when I hold my camera. Not as bad as yours, but it's it's noticeable. I'm like, but your gimbal's perfect. What is it so I can buy it kind of thing? And then she's like, oh, this and that, blah, blah, blah. It's this. Here's a link. And she sends it. And then afterwards, she is all freaked out. Like, oh, my God, that was an affiliate link. And I literally just was like, I don't give a shit here. Here's like 10 bucks kind of thing. You know, I think people want to support creators, right? We, you I know, think so. Giving us so much good stuff. I'm happy to click on your affiliate link if I support you as a creator. I want right. to. I want you to give me those affiliate links because I know how much work goes into it. And you need to monetize. So give me that affiliate link. I'll click on it. I'll buy directly from that. I'll even go out of my way and people will to click on that affiliate link if it's from a um, if it's from somebody they support. And that, that was a big one in this podcast I followed for a long time. What he would used to do is say, hey, here's a general link 
to Amazon. It's an affiliate link. So he's like, we all shop at Amazon. Just bookmark it, click it in your web. It's going to bring you up in the app. He's like, and then just go about your day. And I get like a two, three bucks off each purchase. Purchase. No extra charge to you. I was like, that's smart. I was like, I didn't think about it for something like that. Like we all do it anyway. Just press it. It'll send you back to the app and I'll get like two, three dollars off each purchase. I think that's, I I think that that's really how more and more people are going to monetize. And I think it's more how people are going to support. I've obviously supported artists on Patreon and that's great, but it's like, I have to go through more clicks. I have to sign up for another thing. So I believe that if you do influencer stuff, right, the influencers community is going to rally around it. They're not going to be bothered far from it. Yeah. And the influencer hopefully knows, understands that you want as little pages to come up. Like, okay, you've clicked Patreon. Thank you. Here's your name and email. Did you click that? Like, okay, now you have to create an account. Like, then I just do that earlier. It's like, all right, whatever. Fill it out. It's like, now you have to fill a punch in your payment. By then you lose everyone. You really do. Um, I now only really do Patreon for, and I know this is awful. I really do it only when I'm actually like purchasing a serialized, um, comic book or something like that yeah yeah for me it's like if it's someone i believe in and they put the link it's just really selfish if they put the link if they put the time to put it in the description of youtube or podcast and i can click it and it takes me straight there john you got my money i have to go to patreon find you sign up make an account punch in my info i'm done yeah, no, no, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not here for this. It's too much for me. My right. family's exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think, you know what? That's, that's where we're at as a society and brands need to get with the program and leverage, leverage what you can leverage what you can. And that's going to be the affiliate marketing. And I think that that is, it's wholesome. Honestly, it's the way people support their favorite creators. Right. They get something they want and they know also the the person uh, gets a little kickback from it too. I, mm-hmm. I, I've i been really trying to edit up videos on YouTube and all that. And I, this one guy I follow on YouTube, his name is Finn Bazaar. He's all about mm-hmm. editing and making an engagement and he tries to make everything funny. Well, I watch on my phone with a, a web browser that blocks ads though. And I watched like 17 of his videos back to back. And on like the final two, he was pitching his uh, presets. And so I went on a whole like, what what are the presets? What's the value kind of thing? And he's selling it for 50 bucks. I realized what he's selling, he could easily ask for 600 kind of thing. And he's just like, it's not realistic to sell at that rate. So I'm just going to sell it at 50. And that's right. I I bought it and I said, okay, I watched like 17 of your videos. You probably lost like 50 bucks on me. So I'm buying your presets kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know what? That's that. That's exactly how I would recommend people work with influencers. Find those people who have real value that they're delivering, who are giving real value to their consumers, who are giving real value to their community, and help them deliver more value. Right? Don't. I, I completely understand, like some fashion influencer types of deals that I see people do where it's like, I'm going to style this cardigan and then give you my discount code. And I'm definitely seeing people click through on that. And we've done that kind of thing in the past, but how much better if you, for instance, talk about how to pack for a trip 
am, I'm not an influencer. I am not being paid to endorse this jacket, but I got to tell you, it's one of those jackets that looks like a suit jacket, but it's warm and also it's crush proof. And if I were an influencer, I would pull this together in a blog post around how to pack for a trip with like a guide of exactly what you need to wear, exactly what you need to have. Um, and that's going to be so much more value than, oh, hey, here's a cardigan or here, here's a here's a sport jacket or a suit jacket. And so make it easy for the influencer that you work with to get that kind of value from the influencer content that you give them. Yeah. Or um, a big one, a lot of like you TikTok, YouTube, whatever, have been saying like advertisers are very strict on how you present it. And one of them he said, he's like, I know my humor is not the most politically correct, but it works for my audience and I can get you a higher conversion. He's like, just let the creator be creative. Yeah. He's like, that's in the name kind of thing. And he's I, like, I and agree. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, as I mean, long as they don't like directly talk shit about the company, I don't care. You know, I I say as long as people align with your values, right? Um, I you know, politically correct means different things to different people. Obviously, we as a we as a company have some very specific values around diversity, inclusion, sustainability, right. Um, right. social impact. And as long as people say that, I do not care if they swear. I do not care if they don't have, you know, it's like, don't have it be corporate. Don't have it be too polished. Everyone knows that that's fake. Well, and it's like, I'm on TikTok and YouTube to escape corporate kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So don't have it be too fake. Don't have it be, um, yeah. Do not have it be something that people are like, oh, this this went through like 16 different degrees of legal and 12 different people making sure that you use the brand's correct adjectives and right. no other. It's like, no, no, you've taken all of the life out of the piece. Yeah. What, what little life it had, you just chopped it. You just absolutely try. So I am a big old geek, right? And so I used to kind of hide that side of myself when I was lecturing, when I was giving talks at conferences and people would be, you know, I would get very pleasant responses. And then once, and this is, this is a little bit of a, it's an emotional story. Um, I was taking care of my mother. She, she had a terminal illness, which she lived much longer with. Thank, thank goodness than anyone expected. And I had a night where I had like not slept and I had to give a talk at an international conference. And I was like, oh, my words, there is not enough coffee in the world because I'd been up all night taking care of my right. mother. Uh, this is going to go so badly because I don't have my filters on. Right. And I, I was talking about SEO and I shared the way I am with you, like my unfiltered opinion of some best practices in SEO that are not really best practices. I think there may have been some, there, some, you know, you. some swears thrown in there. Okay. Um, I think I, I express my opinions very forcefully and I had people literally like tears of laughter were running down their faces and I got the first standing ovation of my life. And that's when I realized, you know what? People respond to authenticity. They do. And I'm 
totally fine. I'm, obviously, you got to know your audience, right? I'm right. not going to get up at like a White House dinner or something. It's fair. <laughs> but um, you definitely do not have to be like this corporate buttoned up citizen. Um, I currently have developed a unfortunately massive obsession with um ancient history and i now use that as analogies when i'm explaining complicated like mark martech topics and i thought oh god people are going to be cringing what a big old dork i am and i send out an anonymous survey after every class and every talk and people are like you know those historical analogies were not only very helpful but i learned things about history and i'm like okay let that geek flag fly it's working right some of the, the stuff I've, I, I don't even know what they're talking about, but the fact that the person's like uh, super authentic on YouTube or whatever, I just subscribe because I'm like, I just like that he's super impassioned or she or whatever. And it's just like the energy. It's like, yes, don't know what the heck you're talking about, though, but I like the energy. I mean, that's just it. Give, give, your, gen- give your genuine energy. Give your genuine, real energy to the extent that it's okay um, in that environment. Again, don't, don't you know, be careful, don't and swear, but do it, you know, do what is right for you. So I do have a question for you because you would definitely know this much better than me. Let's say I do have a good concept of what I'm doing a general gist of who I'm talking to, but the data is not, there's not enough to fully paint a picture. Is it, um, I'm more talking like YouTube and podcasting for me if, to help you out. Um, I know like generally where everyone is, but I don't know who they are or what they like. I just know kind of where they're at. How would I extrapolate that information? Be like, Oh, because of this region, I should be talking more like this to them compared to here. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say I am, I, I think you asked a question that I, has become the topic. Talk about history geeking out. Um, okay. that I think is where what we were taught in school about marketing leads us so down the wrong path. When you talk about like, should I gather my messaging and, and change it based on the region? I'm not a big believer in targeting by demographics versus psychographics. Interesting. And okay. I wish I had my slide deck in front of me, but I do this oh slide presentation to my students. And let's say, I say, okay, you are trying to target teenage girls for a makeup company. You have one of those college savings plans that you want to target parents with multiple children. You're a pet company and you want to target people who travel with their pets and, um, and this is based on one of my students' real life stories. You are LGBTQ travel packages to Hawaii and you want L- affluent LGBTQ millennials. Okay. Got it. Got it. So then I'm like, here's a teenage girl. And I show them Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, okay, here's a parent with multiple children. And I show them Genghis Khan. Right. 
And then I'm like, here's a gentleman traveling with his pets, and I've got Hannibal crossing the Alps. And I'm like, and here's an LGBTQ millennial, and I show them Alexander the Great. And I'm like, are you going to walk up to any of these people, be like, dude, or madam in the case of Joan of Arc, would you like to buy my lip balm, my package tour, my pet carrier? You're going to put the Hannibal's elephant into a pet carrier? So the answer here is, we can look at demographics and you see people, they tell us all the time, oh yeah, our target demographic is teenage girls. I'm like, really? You would sell this to Joan of Arc, would you? Um, and I'm not saying, I mean, obviously these are outlier individuals. Right. And, and, you know, I, I would say, and don't try to sell anything to Genghis Khan, but you're, you're losing the ability to target people based on the use that they have for your product. When you say our target audience is moms, well, mom, you know, where do right. what? It's much more useful to say our target audience is people who need a child safety seat. They're that's probably a lot. That's could be dads. They could be grandmas. Right. Um, and I think it's extremely reductivist to target by demographics. And I think it's a product of when we didn't have such good data about people. So we had to just assume, OK, if I want to sell lip balm, it's something teenage girls like. So I'm just going to target like Seventeen magazine back when that was a thing. Because that was the proxies we had for audiences. We can now right. actually know who's in market for lip balm. And then you can avoid trying to sell Sephora to Joan of Arc. And again, at all attempting to sell anything to Genghis Khan. So that's my history geek analogy. So to back to your question, should you be targeting people differently depending on their demographics or their region? Only if the region is germane to what they want. Okay. Right. And like, I'm not going to try to sell snow shovels in Alabama, but that's not because I think people from Alabama will never want a snow shovel. It's because it's useless to them most of the time. Yeah. So I'm going to look at people's demographics only in the basis of, is that something relevant to what I want to sell to them? And if it is, yeah, if it's not, and you can also look at, people's demographics from the wrong lens. If you're looking at like age, gender identity, um, maybe even income level, region, that's not the salient point. You know what? You could sell to all four of these individuals and they would want it. Siege engines, right? You could sell them armor. You could sell them spears because the demographic that matters is all four of these people are warriors. And that is actually also a demographic, but it's an occupational one. And again, now I'm really going down a history rabbit hole. Oh, I like it though. Sure that the demographic that you are going after is actually the demographic that motivates the consumer's behavior and not something incidental that, oh, we only sell this to tall people or whatever. Okay. So then it's more in a less elegant way, be broader, but specific is, is what I'm hearing. And understand your consumer, do that customer right. journey map. Um, so to extend this now into the world of fiction, we did this in my class recently. I was like, okay, do create a PPC commercial for like totally 
fictional historical examples of what you would be selling to people. And some of my wonderful, delightful students came up with dragon fireproof shields that they would have been selling to the characters in Game of Thrones. That would be, everyone would want to buy that one. I want, it was like, and the ad was like perfect. It was like guaranteed dragon fireproof for your money back. (laughs) I just absolutely adore my students. That's where they were looking at the right demographic and understanding the customer need and the customer journey is, oh, shoot, my shield's been like singed by some dragons. I need another one. It's going to have to be dragon fireproof. That's my motivator there. Right. And it doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter, you know, the gender. It doesn't matter whether they're millennials or boomers. They all need that dragon fireproof shield. So whenever anyone says, oh, my target audience is millennials, first of all, they're usually wrong. They just meet people in their early 30s or late 20s who aren't actually millennials at this point anyway. Or I want boomers by which they mean gray hairs. They completely forgotten me and Gen X even exist. Um, You know, people who have gray hairs. And (laughs) it's like, no, no, you want people who need a dragon fireproof shield. I don't care if they're 16 or 67, they're buying your product. That's the demographic that matters to you. It's awesome. No, I was the reason I was losing my head so hard. I was like, oh, your money back. Well, if it doesn't work, you're going to be dead. <laughs> See, that's, which brings me to another thing. And marketing has a really dirty reputation that we make promises that we know you're not going to hold us to. Right. You're not going to get your money back if that shield didn't work. So, um, the, <laughs> that was cute. You get the right. I even thought of that. Um, but that circles back to things like affiliate marketing, influencer marketing, targeting by demographics, which again, I hope I've you know clarified my position on that. Pick the right demographic. Joan of Arc doesn't want your lip balm, she wants that flame-proof shield. Uh, well, okay, she's not fighting dragons, but you want to think about. I have this argument sometimes with with clients, with students. Marketing is not an inherently dirty practice. It's how you do the execution on it. We've had debates internally around, like, is this SEO tactic spam? Like in YouTube, we've had some luck with really heavily tagging specific um, videos with, I would say, almost like, repetitive tags and yet they it's worked great so then they're like well is this spam i'm like are we hurting anybody with this no um we're using the right tactics and i think people outside of marketing or and in fact many of us in marketing who just don't want to do things that are spammy um they we were reluctant to use all of the tactics at our disposal. And I want to circle it back to marketing. Why are we targeting people by very basic demographics that often have nothing to do with their motivations as a consumer, like how old they are or what zip code they live in? It's because we don't want to use the more specific data saying, oh, these people are all in the market for really good shields, Um, because that would involve, you know, cookie-based technologies in the past. Now it involves other kinds of tracking technologies. It's it's personal data around people. Um, and there are privacy-aware ways of doing that, ranging from looking for 
um, proxies for your audience, like people who subscribe to, you know, Dragon Proof Shield Monthly Magazine. I'm going to make that the title of the show. Dragon Fire Proof <laughs> Shield or Your Money Back. That's the title of the show. That's the title of the show. So you can find out what people want. Consumers pretty heavily telegraph what they want. Mm-hmm. If they're like, you know what, man, I'm going to conquer the known world or I'm going to cross the Alps with my elephants. You can be fairly sure they're in the market for your dragon fireproof shield. Again, now I'm mixing real history with Game of Thrones, but it's fun. people are telegraphing what they want from you. It's not intruding on their privacy to notice, hey, I couldn't help but notice you're crossing the Alps with all these elephants. You need some shields. Right. That's not, that's not hard. No, nope. that's no brainer. Intruding on that person's privacy. You definitely do not want to use things that do violate people's privacy. And I could have a whole other conversation around that. But at the end of the day, consumers want to be targeted with things that are relevant to them. And they're telegraphing that to us. They're buying patterns. They know we're tracking their buying patterns. They're buying the stuff we want to sell them, and they would welcome us coming up to them with offers that give them the things that they want to buy. I mean, when you're busily you know, crossing the Alps with your elephants or conquering the known world, do you have time to shop on Amazon? No. You need the ads to target you. Right. Yeah, that's true. So then, okay, you were talking about the proxy and a less invasive way of collecting this information. What are some of them you tell your clients? Just a side note on that. How long do I got you for? Because I feel like we can go at least three hours. I know we could go at least three hours. Um, I've got a hard stopper. I don't, well, I mean, do you want me to talk for more than an hour? Would people want to listen to that? Um, the energy is so great. That's why I, I actually looked down. And I was like, oh, shoot, I, she might have a meeting next. Okay, well, I can go to like, well, I can definitely go to one or a little little after one. So um, okay. proxy audiences are, I think, the thing that I feel most comfortable recommending to the widest range of clients because it, again, again it goes back to I am telegraphing my intent by, by subscribing to this YouTube channel, by purchasing from this company. I don't think any consumer today in 2022 and beyond, and I, you know, I don't want to date this video, but I don't think any consumer in today's society expects that their purchasing habits are a secret. And so people do believe that, by the way. Well, some do. do. No, it's not a secret anymore. It's not. And especially if it's public behavior, like what kind of creators you're subscribing to. So if you're subscribing to a Twitch streamer on Dragon Slaying, then you're saying I am interested in these shields. I do not consider that to be the kind of information that you can't wildly use in your own marketing, provided you obey all applicable laws and you maintain your ethics. But if you look at, for instance, the audiences for specific creators, for specific media, that's a good proxy audience that isn't privacy aware in most cases. So go to, again, what we talked about, influencer marketing. There's mm-hmm. got to be an influencer in your space, no matter how niche. It, you know, Elephant Harness Monthly might be a thing. I don't know. That would be but cool if it was. 
It really would be. But, you know, no one else has ever tried that. So it is a very niche audience. But there's going to be maybe somebody Twitch streaming something that's related to that niche interest. So what you want to do is you want to go and look at those proxy audiences. That's number one. The second thing is leverage your first party data much more than you already have. You have so much good data locked into your CRM system. And even if you don't have a CRM yet, it's in your email marketing, it's in your e-commerce system. It's in all of those things that should be part of your CRM. All of the data on the people who've done business with you already. Most companies don't even have that as organized as they'd like it let alone are they leveraging it to make the sales that they need to make. So first things first, get a handle on what data you have on your existing customer. It can cost from 2x to 5x to more than 5x more to acquire a new customer than it is to upsell and develop a deeper and better relationship with an existing customer. Oh, yeah. So rather than... Send your sales team out into the field and say, you know what, find us more conquerors. And by the way, I'm not endorsing any kind of colonialism with this. I'm just stretching a metaphor. Colonialism is bad. Invading people, don't do it. Um, But... Wouldn't it be better to just upsell the customers you have? And you're doing, not, no one's doing that well enough, except the few companies that have absolutely gotten a handle on their first party data. But no, in all seriousness, I am not, you know, not glorifying colonialism. I'm just getting caught up in my own metaphor here. It's, it's, you know, it's your metaphor and it's history. It happened. You can't say it didn't. And it's it's going it's it's rolling because it's a nice way to keep it separate from any other like any industry. Because if I say B2B or B2C, people will think, oh, this is not relevant to me. But if you go into like this total fantasy realm, it makes more sense because you can see the the core topic, which is you have more first party data than you think. You know what people want from you who've already done business with you, who are potentially satisfied customers. They should be satisfied customers. Nobody is organizing and leveraging that except a very small percentage of companies that heavily resource it. Most small to mid-sized businesses, even a lot of nonprofits that live off of donations and should be building much better relationships with their donors and supporters are not doing enough with it. And so first party data, proxy audiences, both of those are very privacy aware. And I guarantee you, you're probably only realizing 75% of the ROI from either one of those, unless you've been systematic about both your CRM and about your data-driven targeting and marketing. Sorry, I'm just writing that down. Let's first start with proxy. And that's, that's really good because that's been a big one for me. It's like, oh, I want to start running ads for different products I have, but I'm like, I don't, you're like, save you so much money. Cause I'm like, oh, I'll run it for this person who really likes martial arts and dragons and watches uh, Van Helsing kind of thing. And they'll, they'll totally buy it. Now I'm hearing it like, that's a terrible waste of $500. So you maybe get one or two t-shirts from yeah, yeah. And and you've, in the meantime, got a huge amount of first-party data, customers who haven't bought from you in longer than you typically have repeat customers. Like, first of all, know how often your customers come back to you. How right. often do they need um, a fresh set of helmets or spears or whatever, and in what bulk? 
And if they're not making those purchases with you, why are they not making those purchases with you? Are they reluctant? Are they going over to your competitors? Or have you simply failed to stay on their radar? Once you know that, I think a lot of people are hesitant to over message. They don't want to be um, seen as obnoxious. Half the time, there you're not being obnoxious by being proactive. I think you are actually um, probably probably not marketing enough. And especially so nowadays, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I honestly think that's another metric that I didn't even dig into enough, which is. Look, when you're looking at, for instance, your open rates, your click-through rates for your email or for your CRM, look at whether it's starting to drop off or whether it drops off in response to a specific type of messaging. And if it's not dropping off, and I know this is almost a game of chicken, but if it is not dropping off, you're probably still well within the sweet spot of how often you could be reaching out to your mailing list and how much you could be reaching out to your existing customers because people will tell you when they are fed up with your messaging by unsubscribing or simply not opening. If they're not doing that, then you probably could push a little further mm -hmm. um, and probably be doing um a lot more with reaching out to your existing audience that's true yeah this uh especially with the emails i was using Kartra. that's my next question coming up is or recommend crm uh, just so you can think about that um i was using Kartra, and um this guy was like oh free template just give me your email i'm like okay small price to pay he blew me up within 10 minutes with 25 emails yeah and I was like, I got my one thing and I was just like, I'm like, get me out of this thing. Can I quick? Mm -hmm. I'm like, does he yeah. not see that? was one of those I said, I'm like, does he not see that? Does he not care? You know, I'm always astonished when companies do something like that. And I've actually talked to people who, you know, were using those practices about why. And, and they say, well, if it works with like 1% of people, we really need to make our numbers. So we really, really have to push. You have to push. In a way that's smart, though. I would say, yeah, I would say I would buy targeted, retargeted ads instead of blowing up your email. You kind know, of thing. it's just, um, I think people are just, we're, we're too wedded to old-fashioned tactics. Well, my one mentor, he, he helped me with a lot of my business. Then I realized that he was teaching people how to spot a charlatan and an outlier and a grifter. And then in teaching that, he, I'm like, wait, you're exactly what you're preaching against kind of thing. So it was a whole paradox in that. But um, the the one he, because everyone was saying, oh, I subscribed to so-and-so and he blew me up like three to 10 messages a day. And he's like, oh, it's whoever this, one of the email marketing godfathers, I, it was not ideal, Karnik. It's not because that's mindset. Um, but it's some, someone like huge. And he pretty much says, you keep slamming it so hard and so consistently, they have no choice but to click. No. And he's like, and, he's like, and that's where he said that's been the presence for email ever since he said that in the early 2000s. And I'm it's like, no, not. that does not work. 
That does not work. That is, again, again, and I'm a very peaceful person, believe right. me on that, but I'm going to get back into my metaphor and say that is the siege warfare mode of marketing of like, I'm just going to stand out here with my catapult of email, keep flinging things at you. Right. Like, okay. Um, people get mad when you do that. When you throw rocks in my roof, I'm going to be a little mad. Yeah, you know that, and I've got archers, and it's like I'm like gonna, and it's called reporting you as spam. Right? Don't do that. And when that's where then, because the guy was like, "What is the sweet spot?" And like you said, he uh, he's like three emails a week, kind of like a start of the week, like a pep talk, a newsletter, mid one, like a reminder, like, "Hey, we're doing this event later on in a couple months," and then a Friday, like, "Have a great weekend," and whatever fun thing you want to add. He's like, that will, that's more cute. You're in their mind. You're not a bother. And then when one of them, you actually make a pitch because you're not too much of a bother, they'll click and actually read it. Is he too far off? I would say three times a week. If you don't have a, if, if you're a salesperson and you've had good conversations with somebody and they're a warm lead and they're in a long sales cycle. Yes. Three times a week is totally fine. Okay. If on the other hand, you are a brand and you're sending out a mass email, even if it's to a targeted segment, I think three times a week nowadays is getting a little bit much. I would say 10 years ago, when people were less busy and had fewer media choices, you could do that. I would take that three times a week messaging, and I would shift it over to LinkedIn. I would shift it over to TikTok. I would be doing it as Instagram reels because that's more of an opted in situation where you're not pushing into the um, inboxes of people. Um, you're, you're honestly better off doing that than abusing your email list. And again, every depart, every organization, every department within your organization is going to have different mileage. Some people that's fine. Some people you're going to get unsubscribes. You need to really look at the unsubscribe rate and the open rate on that. I mean, if people are opening your emails, it's working for you. But if you've got like a 4% open rate, that's a sign nobody wants to hear from you three times a week via email. Go do that on TikTok. You will probably grow your brand. You'll reach people you don't yet know. Um, and you will not be annoying your existing mailing list. And that is kind of what I was mentioning to him. I was like, um, how are, if we're supposed to keep our mind uh, in people's mind, have a little piece of their mental real estate, but we don't want to harass them and bullying them into it. How are we supposed to coax them? And he said the same thing. He's like social media. He's like, I don't personally use it. Cause he's like, I use affiliate marketing to get my leads, but he's like, social media is a great way. Cause if they really want to see you, they'll just click it. They're annoyed. They'll click off, but it doesn't affect you directly. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a much easier way of doing it. And again, it can help you reach folks who you don't have first party data on because they haven't done business with you yet. hundred percent. So back to the other question that started to solve, what is the CRM you recommend your customers to use? Oh, I don't like to endorse any particular CRM. I do want, I, so what I'll break it down is I'll talk about, um, 
because I'm not an affiliate of any of them and I do try to keep neutral. We work with so many. We do right. so we work with a lot of companies that are invested in HubSpot. We also work with a lot of folks who do MailChimp, which frankly is close to being a pretty robust CRM at this point that it meets is. our needs. So, but that said, I'm also a fan of Salesforce. We've done a fair amount of work with that. The, the CRM you need is the one that has the features that you want um, and that your folks within your team can use easily. It may not have all the bells and whistles. It may not have every single feature because most of the time people don't use every single feature in their platforms, but it's going to be what your consumers want and you know, in terms of gathering the data around what your consumers want. And it's going to be what your your community of users within your company is going to feel comfortable with. The number one CRM to use is the one that's not going to get a lot of pushback from very confused people who are going to be running that CRM within your organization. Definitely give people training, but do not, again, with the elephants, if you need a pony because you're like a pizza shop on the corner, do not get an elephant CRM. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, it's interesting because I'm, tr- I'm shopping around for one. That's really what I was just saying. I was using Kartra uh, earlier, but that one got really weird dealing with them. Mm-hmm. And I finally would just cut my money. It was like, okay, I'm done. And that's the guy that blew me up like 20 times in 20 minutes. Um, but it's one of those, like, I'm trying to, people have been asking me to a place to like, kind of like, kind of like you, they're like, how do I do this kind of marketing? I'm like, well, let me, let me call Christine. <laughs> what do do? Get a thing. Well, what but we I, do with, um, with our clients is we sit down, we do a needs assessment and then we give them a choice of like two to three CRMs we think would, um, solve their problems. Then we have them do a demo of each and then their gut instinct is going to tell them what they want based on the user interface. Like there's, there's two to three CRMs for every need. And the deciding factor is, does this user interface instinctively make sense to me the way I like to work? That's it. Like that's in a nutshell. Perfect. So kind of my analogy I wrote down is simpler, it's better, uh, but also powerful. Okay. Because yeah. Kartra was so complicated for me. I'm, I'm pretty tech inclined. I like my computers. I like software. I've been learning coding. So like, I get it. And I'm looking at this like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this kind of thing? So yeah. that, right out of the gate, I should have listened to my gut and just be like, this is a bad idea. Just get your money and go. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, I am. Do you need to get that, going? Uh, you know, it is. It's one Oh nine. We don't yeah. absolutely have to like get going, but we could certainly, I mean, if you want to start ask, it down. ask questions, I am here for that. Oh, Boston. I was thinking you were central. Sorry. So I was like, wow, we got plenty of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's one o'clock my time. Uh, yeah. Then my only three going out questions is really simple. Other than okay. work, uh, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy during these COVID times? 
Well, when I'm when I'm not reading up on, on military history or trying to figure out how to sell package tours and lip balms to history's greatest warriors and succeeding very little, um, what I do is I am an avid, I kid you not, I have three dogs and a cat. Okay. Um, so I rescue, rescue these animals and they keep me busy. I like to go hiking on all of the local trails around here to exercise my pets, um, for several miles every weekend. It depends. Like I might do eight, 10, 20 miles a weekend with the dogs. Um, I'm an avid knitter and I, I love to bake when it's cold out, which hopefully will be soon. Um, and I really just enjoy spending time with friends and family. That's awesome. Uh, second question. Someone inspired by you and wants to walk down a similar path. What are some tips, tricks, or advice you give them to get this going? Um, find the area of marketing that, that feeds your soul. I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but find the part of marketing that doesn't feel like a slog. It could be graphic design. It could be front end development. It could be marketing automation. I find that what makes me tick is solving really complicated tech stack problems, but doing it with an eye to what the marketing strategy is. Like, how are we going to gather this data about customers and how are we then going to make it operational so that we're targeting people and um, we're not selling elephant harnesses to Genghis Khan. That's very important. He might have bought it, but he's like, there's no use for me though. I don't need this. You should have sold us all these tangible. And so you think to yourself, um, that sounds like a boring job, but I really love data. And I found that being just into the data is what makes me happy. So find the thing that makes you happy. Don't let people say, oh, well, the jobs in that are drying up. Find the aspect of that where the jobs are plentiful, right? Yeah, because there's, there's only so yeah. much AI can do currently, there at least. There is only so much. Exactly. There, there's something for everybody in marketing. Find your passion and then find the most likely job descriptions, maybe identify three to five, that will allow you to do more of that and less of what you don't want to do. And then, for instance, if you're like, I totally wish to cross the Alps with large animals, you're going to join Hannibal's Army. If you're like, I want to save France, you're going to join Joan of Arc's Army. So... In other words, figure out where you can go with that passion and enthusiasm where you're appreciated. There's companies that will will absolutely love you. And if you're not in a place where you're doing your best work, um, get an exit plan. But it's also an entrance plan to the place where you will do your best work. So that's my advice. Wonderful. I love how you hit like all angles of that, too. Uh, where can everyone contact you at? Um, you can go to my website. It's thoughtlight.net, T-H-O-U-G-H-T, thought as in thinking, light, L-I-G-H-T. So T-H-O-U-G-H-T, L-I-G-H-T, thoughtlight.net. And you can hit the contact us button and that will eventually quickly make its way to me. Um, and you can go on Amazon if you want to buy my latest book, Marketing Metrics. And that's under my last name, Christina Inge, I-N-G-E. But I, if you go to the Kogan Page website, K-O-G-A-N-P-A-G-E, um, the discount code that I'm going to provide is going to work there to get you 20% off. Um, and that's discount code metrics. So, um, all due respect to Amazon. You go to my publisher's website, you'll get a little, you'll be able to use the coupon code. 
That's fine. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, absolute honor and pleasure. Sorry I overwent the, uh, the hour with you. Well, I, I hope people got as much much geeky joy out of it as I got out of having this conversation with you, Josh. It's been wonderful. Just the energy alone. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be like, dude, you should listen to this. It's just fun. Hope so. I hope as long as they're laughing with you and not at you, it's a good day. It's a very good day. <laughs> well, congratulations. You made it to the end. You're an awesome person. Not many make it here. So being the awesome person that you are, can you do me one more awesome favor? Can you rate and review this on whatever podcast uh, services you're using? Um, app, if you do it on Apple uh, and you leave an actual written review, um, I have a thing on my website. I will take your written review and post it for all to see. Congratulations. You're permanently sealed on my site. Otherwise, um, I am trying to do YouTube more and live streaming. Um, I will try to put as many of the YouTube links in the description of the show as I can. So give your boy, uh, some extra help over on, um, YouTube, watch my videos. I mean, I just mute it and change the channel, <laughs> change the, the window or something. But yeah, um, that's it. Thank you for being awesome and see you next time.